Hiring for your small business? If you're not looking for professionals on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. That's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank. LinkedIn helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else. Even those who aren't actively searching for a new job but might be open to the perfect role. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't even visit other leading job sites. So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. Even on a budget, quality is non-negotiable. That's why Quince is the place to score high-end essentials at 50 to 80% less than similar brands. Get your hands on buttery soft cashmere sweaters from just 60 bucks, Italian leather jackets, and so much more. And the best part about Quince, they exclusively partner with factories committed to safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. Elevate your style without the elevated price tag with Quince. Go to quince.com slash upgrade for free shipping and 365-day returns. Hi, I'm Mike Boris, and this is Straight Talk. As I understand, you met Zelensky, yeah? I need ammunition, not a ride. Is everyone in Ukraine that badass? You know, you can see why he is such a good leader when you meet him in person, the most effective leader of the 21st century so far. All of us, millions of Ukrainians, wish the same victory. Retired Army Major General Nick Ryan mastered the art of war. You don't have to be hugely better than your enemy, you just need to be better, and the Ukrainians have proven that. Russia has lost every battle it's fought. When you start losing, it's hard to change that habit. And he's looking to what's next. The Chinese Communist Party is not friends with democracies. This is not a hard concept to understand. What are you most worried about? What keeps Nick Ryan awake at night? Nick Ryan. No worries, mate. It's good to talk to you. We're going to talk about uh, Ukraine, Putin, etc., and, and probably touch on China. But before we move on too far, um, Senator Jim Mullen, uh, Major General in the Australian Army, a predecessor to you, in other words, predated you, as a major general, um, passed away, uh, sadly, um, was a, a great Australian, but someone who's um, acutely aware of protecting our borders and uh, protecting and also how the region operates in a security sense. Um, did you know him? Yeah, I did. I'd known him for nearly three decades. Um, you know, I first met him when I was a very young captain <laughs> serving in Darwin and I got to spend a day or two with him when he was commanding the 1st Brigade in the field in northwestern Australia um, and saw a very professional but very demanding uh, commanding officer, which is exactly what you need for good Army combat leaders. Um, and we got to, you know, uh, talk many times over many years. I used to go and have lunch with him when he commanded the Defence College. We used to have great arguments <laughs> about defence policy, about the future of the military, and he'd always end by slapping the table. Uh, even if we disagreed vehemently, he'd slap the table and say, we've got to do that again next month. He was always open to different and new ideas. You know, he revelled in different and diverse range of ideas. He was never one to suppress them like we might see out of some of our leaders these days. Um, and, you know, I, I last got to speak to Jim just before Christmas um, and we talked about a few things going on and, 
you know, I, I knew he was sick and he talked about good weeks and bad weeks, but hopefully, you know, there were not just some good weeks and bad weeks, but some good years ahead. But sadly, that, that wasn't to be. Yeah, Sad, I know his daughter quite well and the family. So, Jim Holland, uh, rest in peace. Mate, Mick, or Major General, it was around about, well, not quite now, but we're about 11 months away from when, when you and I last talked. It was uh, just at the outbreak of the war. 11 days after Russia invaded uh, Ukraine um, in February 24th, February 2022. Um, a lot's happened since then. Um, when we had our conversation last time that you made a prediction that this war was going to go on for a few years, it looks like you're on the money. What's different now, though, with the hindsight of 12 months? What's different? Yeah, I think a couple of significant changes. First, uh, Ukraine is on the ascendancy in this war. I mean, I don't think many analysts predicted that this would happen, uh, but they have beaten the Russians on the battlefield multiple times, and they're also winning the global information fight. I mean, the Russians have tortured, raped, uh, murdered their way across Ukraine, destroyed cities, are currently engaged in destroying civilian infrastructure and killing civilians, you know, with total abandon. Uh, and, you know, the, I don't think a lot of people really foresaw just how brutal and how violent this might become, even though that is the norm in warfare. It doesn't mean that's what we want to see. It doesn't mean we should be doing all we can to stop Russia. But I think, you know, that the trends are that this is a war that will continue for some time to come. They are both large, well-resourced countries, and Ukraine certainly has good sources of supply from the West, uh, this is a fight that will be uh, will be going on for some time and will continue until the Russians are thrown out of Ukraine. What I don't understand, Mick, is like someone's attacking my backyard, I'm defending the backyard, which is what Ukraine's doing, they're defending their yard. But at no stage has the Ukraine gone, well, I want to just send a few missiles or a few tanks into Russia and have a crack. What, what's the strategy or the lack of strategy around that? And what's the thinking around that? Why hasn't Ukraine attacked Russia? Well, it's a pretty clever strategy from the Ukrainians, to be quite frank, even though they've done a couple of attacks on Russian air bases. These are air bases that are directly involved in attacks on Ukrainian people. Now, the Ukrainians are defending their country. Uh, they know that they have to put all their resources into doing that. But they also know that uh, certain countries in Europe are supporting Ukraine, but that support is tenuous and it's based on Ukraine assuming a defensive strategy. If Ukraine was to do something that uh, happened within Russian borders that resulted in the death of Russian civilians, uh, you know, the, the Ukrainian support would come under scrutiny from many people in the West, which would put pressure on politicians. So the Ukrainians have a pretty clever strategy, what I call corrosion, which is about corroding the Russian military from within, but also corroding uh, public opinion in Russia in the support for the war, although that's been a slow and, and is an ongoing task. So I don't expect we're going to see the Ukrainians attacking Russian soil unless it's some kind of strategic air base or missile site directly engaged in attacks on Ukrainian civilians. I might add, for those who want to uh, act like they're all sophisticated and say, what about attacks on Crimea? Crimea is not Russia. Under international law, it is Ukraine, and Ukraine will be taking back Crimea at some point in the future, whether the, the medium or the long term. Okay, so we keep hearing, well, at least I keep hearing on 
the BBC, which I turn on at about uh, nine o'clock every night, and um, they they go straight to the war, and we keep hearing about how you just mentioned it that the Ukrainians on the ground are giving the Russians a bit of what for, and they keep showing us footage. I'm hopefully hoping it's not the same footage over and over again, but of Russian tanks smashed up, you know, trucks all smashed up, blah, 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 retreating Russians. In other words, indicating to us, and I'm assuming this is not propaganda, but indicating to us, the viewers, that Ukraine on the ground is giving the Russians what for and and therefore creating loss, creating loss of assets, creating loss of, um, you know, how the Russians feel about the war, you know, maybe having a morale um, impact. But at the same time, I also watch on the television that the Russians are sending missiles, it looks like, um, and I presume they're by aeroplane or where they're sending missiles from, I don't know how you might be able to tell us, but smashing the hell out of um, residential environments or residential areas in Ukraine with abandon, as you said earlier. How do we reconcile those two things? Uh, Are you going to tell me that Russia, if they wanted to, could just press the button and just annihilate Ukraine in a minute with the missiles? Well, they could if they used uh, their full nuclear arsenal, but I don't expect we're going to see that anytime soon because if they did that, the response from the West against Russia, I think, would be quite overwhelming. Uh, no, I mean, Russia has lost every battle it's fought in the last few months against Ukraine. Uh, and when you start losing battles, not only does it corrode the morale of your soldiers, you know, it impacts on the home front, but it also impacts on the military as a whole, when you start losing, it's hard to change that habit. Uh, And that's where the Russians are at the moment. And it's why they're so desperate for something at Bakhmut or Salada that they can call a victory. Uh, Because at the moment, the Russian military are losers. Uh, The Ukrainians have been beating them. They've been pushing them back. They've taken back large swathes of the territory that the Russians captured at the beginning of this war they have the confidence of winners and those who are being successful on the battlefield. Now, that doesn't mean it's without cost. It's been at huge cost. Tens of thousands of Ukrainian soldiers and civilians have given up their lives just to get to where we are right now. So the Russians in this position, uh, as losers on the battlefield, have had to come up with something else that they can use to... Uh, impact on Ukrainian will to continue the fight, but also that they can portray as a success back home to their own people. I mean, domestic constituencies still matter even to ruthless authoritarians like Putin. So it's this missile campaign. So they're using missiles launched from ships in the Black Sea, from bombers that are flying over Belarus and Russia, and from ground-launched missiles and Iranian drones to portray that they are having an impact on Ukraine. The reality is, like many of these bombing, strategic bombing campaigns of the, of the past, they really just strengthen the will of those who are being attacked, as we're seeing from the Ukrainians. Um, the Russians have a lot of missiles and they're going to keep doing this, uh, and it is having an impact on the Ukrainians, but it's not changing their will to fight and resist against the Russians. Why are the Ukrainians so good? I mean... Putin's had years to prepare for all this. And by the way, the Russian soldiers are pretty experienced because they've been in Syria and various other places. I mean, there have been lots of campaigns. So you would expect them to be good at this shit. What is superior? 
Well, the, war is never about absolutes when it comes to the interplay of the two belligerents. It's all about relativities. And and the the reality of this war is the Russians have not been as good at strategy because they've made bad assumptions about the Ukrainians not wanting to fight at the start of the war, that the Ukrainians wanted to be liberated, that they weren't a unified nation. And those strategic mistakes from the uh, beginning of the war really have flowed down to their military strategy, how they fought in the first few months. Um, and the reality is the military that went into Ukraine is one that was preparing for a very different kind of war. I mean, they really prepared their military for a defensive campaign to defend Russia, not an offensive one, into a neighbouring country. That wasn't really what they prepared for. Syria was a very different war to this one. It was, you know, very low density. They were invited in by a host government. Uh, and they had a pretty significant military advantage over the rebels that they were uh, murdering, raping and gassing. So the Russian military actually weren't that well prepared for this war. And they made a lot of assumptions about the Ukrainians that haven't played out. The Ukrainians, I think, were understudied by most Western analysts. And too many people probably assumed that it was the same Ukrainian military that had done so poorly against the Russians in 2014. The reality is... The Ukrainians have invested in the last eight months to improve the quality of their people, improve the quality of their equipment, improve the quality of their leadership, which is very important. And that has made all the difference in this war. You don't have to be hugely better than your enemy, you just need to be better. And the Ukrainians have proven that pretty much from day one. And to reinforce that, they've learnt and they've adapted throughout this war better than the Russians have. So... The relative difference in quality between the Russians and Ukrainians has continued to widen uh, as a gap. The Russians have learned, but not as quickly and not as well as the Ukrainians. And with the supplementation the Ukrainians receive from the West, whether it's new advanced munitions, HIMARS, uh, armoured fighting vehicles that are coming from Germany or US and hopefully main battle tanks, uh, that will widen the gap between the two of them and it will be something that's very difficult for the Russians to close. Let me skylark for a sec. Could it be described that this current war in Ukraine between Russia attacking Ukraine, Ukraine defending their position, relative to the West, Western countries that are participating by helping Ukraine, could it be said that those countries are looking at this as an exercise, as a practice position to see how they can defend against Iraqi drones or they can defend against missiles and or maybe we'll put these uh, technology things into into Ukraine and just see how that operates. Is there any sense in that or is it they are really, really committed? Oh, it's a bit of both and other reasons. Uh, the reality is countries help others in war for a variety of national and strategic reasons. I mean, Europe is helping Ukraine uh, one, because it's a democracy, so they see an interest in preserving democracy in all its forms, wherever it exists, and that's an important thing we should remember in Australia about Taiwan. But they're helping because they have economic links. I mean, Ukraine is a major exporter of grain, of steel, of manufactured goods, has a massive IT industry, so there are commercial links there. Um, but also, you know, for a lot of countries, you try and fight what we call, you know, what you might call in footy terms, away games. Yeah. You you never want to fight or you want, never want to play on your home field. You want to fight away. It's been Australia's 
strategy since Federation. That's why we've always deployed overseas. It's always better to fight away than home, and Ukraine is doing that. And then there is, yes, there there is this opportunity to learn about modern warfare, although that's not a leading reason. It, it's a lagging reason. It's certainly a reason. And the US and others are looking at this war for its lessons, uh, for fighting Russia potentially in future on the ground, in the air, at sea, in cyberspace and in space, and also for lessons uh, in the Western Pacific. Certainly the Chinese will be studying this war uh, in minute detail like they did the first Gulf War in 1991, which drove their current multi-decade transformation of the People's Liberation Army. Because, I mean, if I was observing it from a distance, it wouldn't matter if it was just business for me. I try to look at, as you say, try to watch everybody else's battles in business and trying to work out what they're doing well and what they did badly and, and try then to use it in my own world. What do you think is one of, are some of the learnings from all this? I mean, what, this, these cluster Iraqi drones or what are, we, what are we learning? What are you as a military strategist learning about how to fight these wars in the future or maybe just currently? Yeah, so, I mean, uh, that, that's a conversation that could take us in lots of places over, over a period of a month probably. But, you know, there's some top-line lessons here. I guess the big ones are that, you know, big wars are still possible. Uh, I think uh, at the end of the Cold War, many assumed, many hoped, rightly, of course, that, you know, we no longer had to worry about building massive military institutions to defend ourselves and we could focus on the prosperity of our peoples. Now, that's a... That's a good aspiration. I mean, at the end of the day, uh, the primary aim of a government is to ensure the safety and prosperity of the people that it governs. But the reality is, as we've seen in the last few years, there are still big, capable authoritarian regimes who believe that military action is the way they can achieve their outcomes. So, you know, the big lesson is we need to increase defence spending in democracies uh, and to expand our ability to fight on the land, air, sea, cyberspace and space. So that's a, that's a big strategic issue that many countries, including our own, are still coming to grips with because, you know, strategy, as Bernard Brody once told us, where's a dollar sign? This doesn't come for free. There's an opportunity cost. For every dollar you spend on defence, you're not spending it on a school, a hospital or something like that. So these are difficult political issues. Um, another lesson, I guess, that comes from this is this battle of opinion, this influence fight that the Ukrainians and the Russians have waged since the beginning of this war. I mean, they have both sought, with different audiences, of course, to influence world opinion, influence governments, influence multilateral institutions to support their cause or at least not get in the way of their cause. I think the Ukrainians have been enormously successful in this, but it's an ongoing Fight, and it's not just government organisations. Of course, there's a huge number of private citizens and private corporations are involved. I mean, the North Atlantic Fella organisation is a great example of memes being used to rubbish the Russians and show off their awful, awful deeds. So, inf strategic influence is another lesson, and I think a third big lesson is leadership. I mean. Zelensky's, you know, now immortal words, uh, I don't need a ride, I need ammunition, you know, will echo down probably for decades uh, of uh, examples of a good leader who had the courage to stay and fight when things were at their grimmest. 
at their darkest and most uncertain. And that leadership that he's provided through the darkest hours and through the successes in Kharkiv, Kherson and other places uh, is an example to modern politicians that you actually need to step up your game. Um, how many of you, including our own, can look in the mirror and say they would pass the Zelensky test of courage, of speaking plainly, of unifying their people? Now, the circumstances are different, but the lesson still holds right. We want national leaders, we want politicians to be good leaders, to care about people and not focus on their elections, but focus on good governance. So I think there's there's another great lesson there. Now, there's a myriad of military lessons that we could go into. But for me, those big three are really important ones that emerge from this war and should wake up a lot of politicians, strategists and people in the general community. As I understand, you met Zelensky, yeah? Yeah, I did. So h- how did that happen? Nick, like, I mean, I'm intrigued as to how did you get to meet uh, Vladimir Zelensky? I mean, what's the process? Well, um, I was asked to. I, uh, I got an invitation from a Polish uh, institution. They were taking in a small group of scholars and, and analysts to uh, do a bit of a study tour of Ukraine, and it included a meeting with President Zelensky on the last morning. Uh, you know, it, was a, it was a real professional highlight of my life, uh, I can tell you, and uh, I thought he was, frankly, the real deal. Uh, you know, in person, he's, he's funny uh, he's fit, uh, he's aware, he's obviously remaining well-rested, which is a really good leadership quality. Um, but engaging, he listens, he demonstrates all those things about good leadership that we talk about in the military and business and in government. And, uh, you know, you can see why he is such a good leader when you meet him in person. So, no, it was a highlight and uh, I'm, I'm hoping he's able to stay around and see this through to victory over Russia. So would, would Putin be thinking to himself, I just got to nail this dude, I got to, uh, Zelensky, because if, if something happened to, to Zelensky, I would, I don't know, I don't know anything about military stuff, but I'd imagine that would put a big dent in Ukraine's progress as just as a nation. Um, would Putin be thinking about that? Like how can I get rid of this guy? Oh, he, he would have been thinking about that before the war. It's kind of the Russian way of doing things, right? Um, they take out opponents. I mean, they do it all the time, whether it's through poison or falling out windows or regime change. Uh, and there's a lot of evidence that there were multiple attempts to try and kill Zelensky and his family at the start of this war. But the reality now, however, is that uh, while Zelensky is a vital leader for his nation and for the West, uh, he's set up a system now of not just his but a, a myriad of others in his governments of interacting with Western governments that as tragic and as awful it might be if uh, Zelensky was to to die or be murdered by the Russians, his country now has the capacity to continue fighting in a unified way. I mean, if we think back to the latter parts of the Second World War when Franklin Roosevelt died or even our John Curtin died, I mean, these were consequential leaders that unified their nation, built up industry and led uh, their countries close to the precipice of of victory from the very darkest days. But their countries survived, they moved on and they won. And I think Ukraine would do the same. Now, hopefully, you know, I expect this is all just an abstract conversation because he really has been the leader 
uh, the, the most effective leader of the 21st century so far, and uh, we should all wish him well. Does it apply on the flip side, though, in terms of Putin? I mean, I would imagine too um, various actors would be thinking to themselves, let's just cut Putin off at the knees at a personal level and that might change things. Will Russia continue on with the same amount of exuberance if Putin didn't exist? Probably. Um, you know, you always got to be careful with regime change because you don't always know what's on the other side. I mean, could be worse. The West has had, you know, the West had that experience in both Iraq and Afghanistan, and look how that worked out for us. Or if you go back further, South Vietnam. So, you know, you don't know what's on the other side of regime change. And as you know, a friend of mine, uh, US strategist uh, Eric Edelman, has counselled on several occasions. He said, generally. When the Russians change regime, it is a big change. If you have a look at 1917, if you have a look at 1991, these are not minor changes in regime. They're big ones. So we could see something major on the other side of Putin's demise that might be good, but I think uh, it's more likely to be really bad and uh, we should be very cautious about that. So I think the demise of Putin is not a pathway to victory here. Um, beating Russia on the battlefield and ejecting the Russians from Ukraine is regardless of who's in charge in Russia. Can I just switch it a little bit here? I was reading in the, um, uh, I think, the edition of two weeks ago, The Economist, which comes out every week, the importance of Musk, Elon Musk's uh, satellite system or um, yeah, the satellite system that he currently has up floating around our globe, our planet, um, and the signalling that the satellite system is allowing people in Ukraine to use in terms of access to the internet and putting up stories and playing the propaganda game given that Russia is out there trying to destroy left, right and centre, all the infrastructure, particularly just, you know, internet access. Have you given any thought to the importance of something like that um, operating Today, in other words, how important is it for us to have unfettered access during a war like currently going on in the Ukraine to the internet and for people on the ground, like citizens, to be able to upload stuff to you and me to see and for BBC to get hold of and also just the whole communications game. So I guess communication is really important in war. You know, it has been for a long time, uh, whether using flags or runners or the telegraph or wireless or, or many other means. I mean, to co co coordinate what's going on on the ground and a whole range of things, it's it's vital. Um, you know, in fact, <laughs> funnily enough, it was in Ukraine, in Crimea, during the Crimean War, where the telegraph was first used in military operations and the British Army used it to telegraph back to London overnight and uh, stories would appear in the London newspapers the following day, but it also allowed... British politicians to telegraph fuel commanders, which uh, was the start of this term, you know, 3,000-mile screwdriver. Uh, in more contemporary era, you know, assured access to communication isn't just important for military institutions, as we've seen in Ukraine, has been vital for getting out the stories and the images of this Russian invasion. Now, that didn't happen by accident. The Ukrainians, in the wake of the 2014 Russian invasion, invested a lot in a more robust national terrestrial telecommunications network. And for most of this war, they have demonstrated the ability to keep their internet working, you know, at the 80-90% capacity. In fact, Monash University, they have a great feed of uh, internet 
uh, availability in Ukraine that's uh, almost live, uh, Monash IP, I think it's called, and you can follow it on Twitter. Um, but that has been vital in allowing uh, battle tracking, uh, mapping, analysis, uh, getting out uh, images and stories of Russian atrocities, uh, destruction of Ukrainian cities and infrastructure. So, you know, that uh, telecommunications resilience, if we would call it that, is an important part of a wider national resilience posture that Australia and others actually have been looking at for a few years now, but it will take some investment. And if I was to use an example in Australia that's not related to the military, uh, we need to have resilient communications networks when bushfires and floods occur. I mean, we all know in southern New South Wales and Victoria during the last big bushfires, there was a lot of uh, shortfalls in communications which hindered both. I'm Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me because you didn't use LinkedIn Jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job but might be open to the perfect role, like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. Hey, it's Ryan Reynolds, and I'm here with Keith, co-star of my upcoming film, If, only in theaters May 17th. Do you want to tell people the big news? All right, I'll do it. Sign up now, and you'll get unlimited for $15 a month in six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan on us. Mintmobile.com slash switch. Upfront payment of $45, equivalent to $15 per month. Unlimited over 40 gigabytes per month. Face lower speeds. Videos at 480p. Active Mint customers by 531.24 get six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan. Auto renews after six months. Offer ends May 31st, 2024. Separate Paramount Plus registration required. Terms and conditions apply, if rated PG. Uh, the firefighters, as well as uh, civilians, and uh, we need to really redress that kind of telecommunications resiliency, among other challenges. As I recall during the Lismore floods, um, Mick Fanning, the uh, famous surfer, surfer, somehow was able to make contact with Musk and uh, Musk somehow um, made available to victims or people in Lismore and during the flood period um, their, their satellite boxes or the, the boxes, Starlink boxes that connect to the satellite and we're all all of a sudden able to see a whole lot of uh, footage about what's going on, et cetera, and kept us all up to date and newspapers up to date and TVs up to date, but also allowed the people who are suffering in Lismore to feel as though they could somehow communicate better with us. Do you, do you think, and that, that helps morale, do you think that um, in the future the wars will be such that someone like Russia might say, example, here in Ukraine, well, let's let's – shoot down all those satellites. Let's destroy those satellites from space. War will move into space in terms of killing off communications. Well, we've been there for a while. Um, you know, the Russians, the Chinese and the Indians have all demonstrated the ability to launch missiles to destroy satellites in orbit. Uh, it's not very popular when they do it because it creates a debris field which has an impact on other satellites in similar orbits. But thinking about space warfare, uh, on-orbit operations, as it's called, uh, has been going on for some time now just because of the importance of what satellites provide military and national capabilities. I mean, uh, without satellites, you don't get precision navigation. 
uh, through GPS or Baidu or GLONASS, um, which are some of the you know American, Chinese, and Russian systems. But the other important thing these GPS satellites provide is precision timing, which is used for stock trading, which is used for trading on energy markets, for electricity uh, spot prices, and a whole range of uh, basic things in our world now that rely on precision timing, including Netflix and stuff like this. So we've been thinking about this for a while now. Many countries have the capability to use lasers or kinetic um, actions to either destroy or disable satellites in orbit. Uh, they'll continue to do that. But the response to that then has been to put up larger constellations. I mean, Starlink eventually will have tens of thousands of satellites and there are others who are doing similar things. It's very difficult to take all of them out, which gives you a level of resilience that you might not have had with a constellation of, say, 10 or 15 satellites previously. Yeah, what I understand is that Starlink is launching effectively one a week, but in order to take them out, you the takeout is always going to be slower than the launch and that therefore they're always, someone like Starlink is always going to be ahead. And apparently Starlink have launched as many satellites as every other country put together so far. So yeah. that's quite quite an impressive thing and it's uh, Musk playing a quite a good economic game. And speaking about economics, did you are you surprised with the economic fallout globally of this war? No, every war has economic fallout. I mean, it has an impact on trade, it has an impact on the availability of commodities, uh, it doesn't matter whether it's grain or iron ore. Uh, so what we're seeing is, once again, pretty normal. Uh, unfortunately, many who are commentating on the war, don't read history books and, and think this is a one-off and it's the first time they've seen it, so it must be the first time it's happened. It's not. Uh, the vast majority of what we're seeing is entirely normal and has happened many, many, many times before over multiple centuries. Uh, you know, this is why I study war in breadth and depth because you can apply it to almost any struggle between nations. Uh, the year ahead will be very interesting to watch economically, you know, China will emerge out of its uh, COVID self-isolation, uh, but Ukraine will require increasing economic assistance because wars need money to fight. Uh, they need to pay their people, pay their soldiers, pay their government, pay their firefighters and, and police. Um, they will require economic assistance for some time and they'll require hundreds of billions to rebuild their economy eventually. That money has to come from somewhere. So the economics of this war really bear watching and are in some respects as fascinating as the military aspects. China, where does President Xi sit in all this? I mean, I mean, apart from playing the observation game and trying to learn from it, is he secretly, do you think China's secretly supporting Russia by commercially, by and economically I should say, by buying things from Russia um, and doing that in a strategic sense or are they just being opportunistic or is Xi... Do you think she is going to say, hang on, this is too tricky. I might stay away from all this. Where, where, where is China in this whole conflict? Yeah, it's, it's interesting, isn't it? I think it's a bit of opportunism, getting cheap goods and, and things like that. But it's probably also, um, you know, they have a relationship. Uh, both Xi and Putin have a worldview where they don't want Western democracies to be preeminent in the world. They want to challenge uh, the, the, the liberal international order, in inverted commas, that has grown since the end of the Second World War. So China has an interest in, one, distracting the West with a war in Europe. Uh, he has an interest in getting cheap energy. 
it has an interest in some forms of support for Russia. It, it doesn't need a collapsed Russia on its border. Uh, it needs a functioning state there for its own security. It, it doesn't want to look north for its security problems. It already looks east for that. So, you know, this, this is a pretty complex strategic challenge for the Chinese president before he starts worrying about the myriad of internal challenges that he has to, has to face over the coming years. And North Korea, we don't seem to talk much about North Korea now, but uh, he'd be sitting there thinking to himself, just like you said, there's a distraction. World has a distraction. I can now do what I want. And he keeps, he, he keeps sending missiles, ballistic missiles <laughs> towards Japan and over the top of Japan. Um, or is he just toying with us or we just toy with him? Uh, you know, North Korea is kind of like the runt of the litter when it comes to authoritarian regimes. Um, you know, they're extraordinarily inwards focused. They have nowhere near the economic capacity of the larger authoritarian regimes like China, Russia, Iran, um, or some others. Um, but they're constantly jumping up in the air with their, their hand up going, what about me? What about me? Don't, don't forget about me. Uh, it's kind of a, a really pathetic strategic approach to ensure the world uh, doesn't forget about them. Uh, the reality is um, North Korea's impact on security in the Western Pacific uh, is primarily in the relationship with South Korea and Japan. Most other countries, it has minimal impact. Uh but, you know, as North Korea developed more effective long-range and medium-range missiles, you know, they could be exporting those. They might be able to export more munitions to Russia and other nations. That's where their principal challenge to global security environment lies. You know, their regional pain in the neck uh, that has demonstrated the capacity to build fairly rudimentary nuclear weapons. But as a threat to the world peace, um, they're fair way down the totem pole compared to China and Russia. So if I flip over then to the Middle East or Central Asia at least, where's Iran sitting all this? Maybe also Syria, but definitely Iran. Yeah, Iran's a, a more di- is a different proposition and a more dangerous one than the North Koreans. I mean, they're a source of ideological ferment, You know, they export ideas around their version of Islam. And at the same time, they are really active in the support for uh, foreign entities, especially terrorist organisations that target different regimes that are against them. Um, They also have developed uh, reasonably effective and cheap medium and long-range strike systems, whether they're drones or whether they are... Um, uh, missiles, and uh, as we've seen, they've been able to export them to Russia and will probably continue to do so, which makes them, that alone makes them a fairly dangerous actor. But I think too, you know, their relationship with different countries in the Middle East um, has an impact. I mean, different countries like Saudi Arabia, Israel and others have large military forces to deal with the threat posed by Iran. Assad's regime, does that feed into the Iranian story, though, and and also ultimately why Russia has been out there supporting both of them over a long period of time? Now, was this part of Putin's early plan or is this just an offshoot of I better better assist in that region? Is this part of a bigger plan, do you think, from Putin's point of view? Well, I think this was about Putin wanting a presence uh, on the Mediterranean coast, 
it gives the Russians a different operating base in the Mediterranean Ocean, which poses a challenge for European and American naval and, and air capacity in that region. Uh, it also gives them leverage over Israel. I mean, because Russia is, in some respects, uh, suppressing some of the threats to Israel. Uh, so it means countries like Israel that are developing some pretty impressive capabilities are reticent to support countries like Ukraine that are fighting Russia. Um, and it means Russia is a player in Middle East politics and world energy politics. As a major energy exporter, Russia has an interest in the Middle East uh, and its energy policies. So yeah, there's a myriad of reasons why Putin has forces and has retained forces in Syria. None of them uh, are enlightened reasons of helping out in the Middle East. Right, could you just expand a bit more of that to me, Mick, because you just said that Russia's presence in Syria is goes to some way of restraining Israel, who has fantastic defence systems like the you know the Iron Dome and all that sort of stuff, which have not been exported at this stage to Ukraine. It's not because Russia is an ally of Israel, but it's rather that if Israel starts ex exporting its defence systems, Russia may unleash the Kraken out of I Iran and uh, those other places in Syria. Is that, the, is that the reasoning? Is that what you're saying? Yeah, no, that's, that's uh, part of the reason, absolutely. I mean, the Russians also have really sophisticated air defence systems in Syria um, that, um, you know, they've chosen not to use against Israeli aircraft that are flying in, killing terrorists who were based in Syria. They could change that. So, you know, this is a fairly complex and difficult environment in the Middle East. And, uh, you know, if it wasn't complex, we would have solved this problem long ago. We haven't. Uh, the politics of Israel, Syria, of Iran, of Palestine and other nations in the Middle East are quite, uh, you know, difficult to sort through and no one has a full picture at any one time of everything that's going on there. And the Russians have decided to wade in and see where they can gain leverage for themselves and leverage over other countries and that's what they're doing with Israel. When we have this discussion, I mean, obviously some of Putin's generals haven't been executing as he would like. Of course, he's changed his leadership and his, his military leadership a number of times over the last six to seven months. But when I just reflect on what you're telling me about Putin generally, his relationship with China, um, his relationship in, these, in his Middle East territories, both with Israel, then Syria and Iran, the way he's conducting himself in Ukraine at the moment, and his oil game, his economics game, he's a pretty smart dude. Like he's... You know, you can't ever underestimate. He's not just a pugilist. He's not just a, a warmonger. He's not just, uh, it seems to me anyway, and I'm hoping to be corrected for sure, but it just seems to me he's a lot brighter or someone in his regime is a lot brighter than we're gonna, than I've ever, most of us have ever even been aware of. Yeah, he's certainly cunning. You don't uh, seize power and keep it for 20 years without having a certain uh, ability for self-preservation, a certain level of cleverness. I mean, you, you can't deny that. Uh, you should never underestimate someone like Vladimir Putin uh, because he's extraordinarily dangerous. Um, but part of his problem now is he spent a couple of years basically isolating by himself with very minimal human contact. So someone who already lacked empathy was extraordinarily brutal 
and vicious has become even less empathetic towards human beings in the lead up to Ukraine because he's been isolated from just about all of them. But you see this in these ludicrous photos of him at these long tables early in the war with his generals. Um, so he's been in power for a long time. He probably thinks he's the smartest guy in the room every time he walks into one. That's always a bad start. Um, he has enormous uh, military and an economic potential for a range of reasons. So uh, he is clever enough to pose a very significant threat to Ukraine and Western Europe and other countries um, in a range of different scenarios moving forward. You know, I don't think we're going to see the end of Vladimir Putin anytime soon. So if we were to dial back into our friend Jim Mullen, what would you and Jim be talking about now that worries the shit out of you? Where's the potential escalation that might bother you? I mean, what it can be escalated more from destroying cities, raping systemically, torturing whole populations. I mean, I'm not sure where the Russians could escalate from here other than the use of nuclear weapons. There is nowhere else for them to go. Uh, they've done just about every awful, disgusting thing that a human can do to another human at, at mass scale in this war. So there's not much... Uh, anyone can do to escalate this, and there's no Western support that's going to escalate this conflict. Uh, giving uh, first world tanks to a country that's been defending itself against an invader that's had this same capability for years is not escalatory. I mean, it's just total rubbish. Um, if I was talking to Jim right now, what we'd be talking about, firstly, we'd be talking about why Australian support to Ukraine has been so parsimonious and slow. Um, it's been quite... Um, terrible, actually, how backward our country has been in supporting Ukraine. I mean, a news release is not support. Um, and you've seen countries like Canada and Western Europe really stump up and do it quickly and responsively in a way that our country just hasn't. Um, and, you know, you've seen them be very inventive uh, in sending generators, sending money to buy air defence systems, not just sending... 40-year-old armoured personnel carriers at a rate of one or two a week like we have. So I think we'd be talking about that. Uh, and, you know, if we needed help in the future, how might people respond to us compared to how we responded to Ukraine? I think there's an important debate there and one that our government seems to be avoiding. I think the other thing we'd be looking at is what does this really mean for this defence strategic review and what are the kind of lessons that the Australian Defence Force should be taking from this conflict. Now, there's a cabal of uh, tank haters in Canberra that seem to think the only lesson for this war is the Australian Army needs to get rid of its ability to fight in future by having tanks and armoured vehicles. That is a very bad lesson for lots of reasons, including there's no evidence to support it. Um, and, you know, it's more about a bunch of people in Canberra who lost the tank debate in the early 2000s uh, than anything else. I mean, there's a range of capabilities now that we have or are looking at that may not be suitable for the future. Uh, attack helicopters, I think, are going to be very difficult uh, to protect and survive on the modern battlefield moving forward. Transport helicopters different, but attack helicopters. I think crewed fighter aircraft. Um, I don't know we should be investing in any more of these things. Uh, the Russians don't fly crewed aircraft over Ukraine. Um, and we should be really thinking about that for our Air Force. Um, and, you know, proposing billion-dollar bombers only exacerbates the craziness of that debate. 
I think air and missile defence is a really important capability and we should really be looking at greater investments to defend our cities and our military bases in this country in a way that we've never had to before. Um, so I think there's a lot of lessons that Jim and I would be talking about that are really interesting and that I'm just not seeing being debated by the so-called strategic community that uh, lives in, in Canberra. Who, who is this community? How is this community made up, Mick? Well, you know, it's academics at universities, it's people at the small number of think tanks that this country has, uh, it's public servants and senior military officers and, and government officials and advisors. You know, they make up this very loose ecosystem of people who ostensibly are, are interested in national security. Um, so, you know, I, I'm not seeing a lot of public debate on a lot of these issues, which really worries me. It really worries me because in a democracy, we should be transparent about these debates to justify investment in advance military and other capabilities to defend our country. And we just don't have that debate in this country, not like the Americans do or the British do. Because if you have debates, you can expose good and bad ideas. You can be more transparent and you can sell to the taxpayer the importance of investing in one thing other than another. And that's something that I think the Australian polity, uh, uniquely among uh, many democracies, is not very good at. Our transparency in government is not what it should be. The transparency in a lot of the big national security initiatives is not what it should be. That, that's very interesting. When you say debate, do you actually mean, I don't know, Mick Ryan versus uh, like publicly, like on Channel 7 or ABC, whatever it is, um, debating with um, one of the uh, policymakers in Canberra, for argument's sake, who may be ex-military, current military or a, a political appointed person, debating whether or not we should have tanks versus fighter jets. I mean, is that the sort of debate you're talking about? Like where we can all – I, no, I tune into it for sure, but is that what you're talking about? Uh, that would be interesting TV, but it would be like the political debates before elections. I mean, it, it, they're made for TV stunts rather than really informative. No, you know, the debate has to be a broader discussion amongst all participants that's open and transparent in uh, journals, uh, TV, radio, the internet, that is talking about these issues. I mean, we were very slow in talking to the Australian people about the threat posed by China, particularly uh, how they were using influence with uh, many Australians in the business community and in government, as the Sam Dastyari incident showed, to shape our view of China and our view of the alliance with the United States. I mean, uh, we've had some successes with the uh, legislation around foreign influence and stuff, but we've got to keep our eye on this ball and we've got to maintain a very transparent democracy uh, because as difficult as that is, it's certainly the best option for a country like Australia to expose bad ideas from within government, but also from uh, authoritarian regimes that are constantly, constantly seeking to influence how Australians think about their relationship with the United States, Europe and China. Do you think that um, our current government is a bit gun-shy given what happened when Morrison sort of did what, you, what you're talking about now, sort of talked about these things publicly and, and had a, sort of had a crack at China. And then, of course, China's response was to hurt us economically. 
Do you think that uh, our current government is a little bit gun shy, or what, why is it that we don't get up off our tush and have a crack at this? And or is it more about the narrative? In other words, how we approach it. We can still be respectful to China, but at the same time, we should bring it to light. I mean, how would you go about it if you were Anthony Albanese right now? Well, I think you know the government. Uh, had some very positive initial moves on national security, uh, statements about the alignment with the United States, the OSMIN conferences, speeches given by Prime Minister, Foreign Minister, Defence Minister, I think uh, have all been uh, enlightening about their view. But, you know, I think generally they've been very positive. But you've got to follow up words with action. Um, You can't talk like China is the friend of Australia. It's a trading partner of Australia. Uh, The Chinese Communist Party uh, is not friends with democracies. I mean, uh, this is not a hard concept to understand. It has no interest in furthering democratic views or transparencies in government. Uh, So we need to accept what kind of relationship with China we have. We sell them stuff and they buy stuff from us. That's the relationship. It's transactional. Uh, and anything beyond that uh, is really just not possible because our systems are just too different. It's why, you know, we have a close relationship with lots of other countries in the world of democracies. We share values. We share common ideas, particularly about the value of human life, of individual rights, of, you know, electing governments, freedom of speech, freedom of religion, all these kind of things. China doesn't have any of that. So we need to be very careful about how we talk about the relationship. And I think, you know, the government is still learning that very cautious two-step. It wants to retain the economic relationship, but it realises that the strategic relationship beyond that is going to be full of perils uh, as we move forward. I think the Defence Strategic Review is a great opportunity to signal our resolve to stick up for what we believe in, as well as the countries to our north that we are friends with. And I hope the government uh, do the right thing and uh, make the right investments as part of that process. Well, Mick, I'm going to ask you one final question, but so that I don't go, or maybe I should, go running up to my farm and build a bunker underneath, under my house and, uh, you know, start prepping, become one of those doomsday preppers and, you know, like stocking up on food and water and uh, ammunition or whatever it is I need to stock up on. What keeps Mick Ryan awake at night in relation to, defending our shores. I mean, what are you most worried about right now? I think I worry most about societal cohesion, frankly. Uh, You know, I I get a sense that trust in government institutions, trust in politicians, uh, trust in other elected and appointed representatives is not what it should be. I'm not sure whether it's at an all-time low, but it's certainly not at an all-time high. Now, some of this has been uh, stupidly imported from... Uh, some of the crazy stuff you've seen in the United States over the last few years, but some of it's Indigenous uh, and some of it's just because we've had some bad leadership at the state and federal level over the last few years through COVID and other things. So if there was one thing that I'd love to see improve in this country is the quality of government, uh, governance in this nation, the quality of politicians and the level of trust that the citizens of this country have in their elected representative. That is That is the core of being a sovereign and unified nation, and I think it's something that we should pay serious attention to. Very well put, and um, and actually I'm with you on that because uh, I just lack confidence in, particularly when it comes to military and 
not the military itself, but the government policy around protecting our shores through the military. I don't know whether they're doing the right thing or not. Therefore, it's not. Therefore, they're not. They're not doing the right thing because I'm not convinced that I, and I don't feel comfortable, particularly with what's going on in the world today, and given who our neighbours are and, and the region. So, um, and so, Mick, I think that's probably a really good way to put a full stop in all this. And I hope to catch up with you again. And I'm so jealous that you had an opportunity to go meet Zelensky. That is so cool. Like that would be one thing. If I could do anything right now, I I think this guy will go down as one of the great people of you know, the last hundred years and uh, just having an opportunity to meet and just to see the individual, how he moves and how he sort of works the room and just get a sense of his personality outside of watching, you know, British Broadcasting Corporation. Um, that would be fantastic. Thanks very much again, Mick, Mick Ryan, um, Major General Mick Ryan. I appreciate all your thoughts and and all your insights into, you know, condensed into one hour what you spend a whole year looking at, reading, observing and talking about. Appreciate it. Thanks, Mick. No worries, Mark. It's great to talk to you again. Thank you for listening to another episode of Straight Talk with Mark Boris. Audio production by Jessica Smalley. Production assistants, Jonathan Leondis and Simon McDermott. This is a Mentored Podcast. Podcast.